I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about a couple of UFO incidents that are still unexplained to this day. And more importantly, it's unexplainable to me how they aren't bigger stories. These are huge UFO stories that you're about to hear in just a minute. But first, we have shout-outs. Welcome, Nick. Manning, Jeff, Megan, Cat, Martin, Lash, Kira, Maggie, hi Maggie, Laura O, Anthony, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Dan, Angie, Matt, Laura, Chuck, Travis, Sarah, Amber, David, Nanashi, Michaela, Heidi, Rachel, Lindsay, Juliana, Edgar, Sarah, J. Mark, Carolyn, Jim, Jade, Carolyn, is there two Carolyns? I gotta check into that. Pablo, Laura, Shani, Jeff, Dill, Laura, Daniel, Laura, and Autumn. Join us on patreon.com slash paranormal almanac. There are exclusive episodes and more fun being had over there. And also, speaking of fun, you can support the show by either going to patreon.com slash paranormal almanac or go over to paranormalalmanac.storeenvy, that's S-T-O-R-E-N-V-Y, storeenvy, only one E, dot com. Paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com for all your Paranormal Almanac merch. All proceeds from the merchandise and from Patreon goes to make this show a better show. I do I do everything from research to editing to stuff on air to telling Stitch to shh, recording, to everything. So, if you like the show, you want to make the show a little bit better, for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon.com, you can help the show or buy some merch over at paranormalalmanac.storeenvy.com. Alrighty, next up we got paranormal news. I got a few things to tell you about in paranormal news. The first up, a giant 700 foot wide asteroid in trajectory with Earth in 2023. So if you got things to do, maybe you should do them before 2023 because according to a report in the Express citing NASA and ESA sources, a giant 700-foot-wide asteroid is heading towards Earth. It's on a risky trajectory, they call it. So there's a small possibility it could kill us all. According to the report, the asteroid has the potential of colliding with Earth on 62 different impact trajectories from between 2023 and 2117. I'll be honest, I'm a little worried about 2023. I am not worried at all about 2117. If I'm still alive... Someone kill me with a small rock and tell me it was an asteroid. Scientists refer to the asteroid as 2018 FL16, observing it for the last time on June 16th, according to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The observations have shown that there are 62 different dates in which the asteroid could collide with Earth, placing it as a potential threat to our planet. That very first date, August 8th, 2023. There are two other risky trajectories close to the first one. That's August 3rd, 2024, and August 1st, 
2025. This asteroid has it out for us in August. Now, they say the giant 700-foot-wide asteroid moves through space at a speed of more than 38,844 miles per hour. What exactly are our odds with this asteroid? Well, there's a 1 in 30 million chance of the asteroid slamming into Earth. So, not the best odds that we're going to get killed by this asteroid, but still, there's a chance. Okay, next up. Next up, there was a strange story from New Zealand, of all places, Strange seismic waves were picked up circling the globe on November 11th. Now seismologists are trying to figure out why. Seismic sensors first picked up the event originating near an island between Madagascar and Africa. Then, according to this story, alarm bells started ringing as far away as Chile, New Zealand, and Canada. Hawaii, almost exactly on the other side of the planet, also picked up the event. And nobody knows what it was. There are a few theories. Was it a meteorite? Was it a submarine volcano? Was it a nuclear test? And they said, I don't think I've seen anything like it. And that comes from National Geographic reports, Columbia University seismologist Goran Ekstrom. He says it doesn't mean that, in the end, the cause of them is all that exotic. The best they can figure is the center of this seismic event that started it all was a tiny island of Mayotte. M-A-Y-O-T-T-E, Mayotte, which is positioned about halfway between Africa and Madagascar. Now, it's been subjected to a swarm of earthquakes since May. Most have been minor, but the biggest was 5.8. So, still not that big of an earthquake. Definitely not a big enough earthquake for it to be felt basically around the world. This guy, Ekstrom, goes on to say, It was as though the planet rang like a bell maintaining a low-frequency monotone as it spread. So he doesn't really know. He says it doesn't really have the same characteristics as an earthquake. He doesn't really know why. They recorded it in Spain. They recorded it in New Zealand, Hawaii, all around the world, and nobody knows what it is. Alrighty, next up in paranormal news, unicorns existed, and they walk the Earth the same times as humans. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're picturing a white unicorn, horse-like thing with the horn and the rainbow mane or rainbows coming out of its ass. It's not quite like that. It is basically a giant rhino that may have been the origin of the unicorn myth, and it survived until at least 39,000 years ago. Known as the Siberian unicorn, the animal had a long horn on its nose and roamed the grasslands of Eurasia. New evidence shows that the animal may have actually died out because it was such a picky eater. Scientists say knowing more about the animal's extinction could help save the remaining rhinos on the planet. Well, if you really want to save the remaining rhinos on the planet, stop fucking shooting them. It's pretty easy, but that's just, you know, one man's opinion. So there you have it. Um, one cryptid checked off the list as real. The unicorn, it's real. All right, move on for the next one. Okay, the next story we have is a pretty big one to me anyway. We landed on freaking Mars again. Congratulations to NASA, to JPL, to everybody for an amazing Mars landing. I watched it as it was happening on the actual monitor and sitting in this exact spot that I'm doing this podcast. It was fantastic to watch. It's always amazing to me. Okay, last up on Paranormal News, 
Remember that Ireland UFO story I told you about a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, whatever? Well, we actually have audio from air traffic control now. Take a listen to this. Can I fix Shannon? Hello, radar contact. And uh, it seems to be smooth ahead of you as well. And uh, Sarah Sieber, my Go ahead. In case you couldn't make that out, she asked if there's any military aircraft in the area right now. Okay, sir, there's, uh, there's nothing showing on either primary or secondary. Okay, it was moving so fast, in fact, you can no longer see it, but yes, thank Here she says something to the effect it was moving so fast coming up alongside her. Uh, alongside you? Yes. Get to uh, come up on our left-hand side and then rapidly veer to the north. Uh, so bright light and then it's just disappeared at a very high speed. And we were just wondering, we didn't think it was a likely collision course, we were just wondering what that could have been. There's a whole lot in there, but basically it came up alongside her, then moved off, veered off to the north. It was moving at high speed. She was wondering what it Meteor or another object making some kind of re-entry. There to be multiple objects following the same sort of trajectory. Uh, very bright from where we were. Okay, that's copied, and uh, is there a direction it was going in or anything? Right, it's copied, thank you. Uh, the Virgin 76 uh, also saw that in our 11 o'clock position, uh, two bright lights. Roger, that's copied, thank you. But it wasn't just me? No, uh, yeah, very interesting, that one. Uh, Virgin 76, I saw uh, two bright lights, 11 o'clock, seem to um, back over to the right and then uh, climb away at, uh, at speed, at least from our perspective. The important takeaway from this pilot is it veered off to the right and then started to bank up and go away. Meteors, meteorites do not do that. They don't veer, they don't change and alter course, nor do they speed up, which this thing apparently did. So you can hear three different pilots from three different airlines and the air traffic controller all trying to figure out what the hell everybody just saw. And that's the main part of this one. I mean, it does go on for another 10 or 12 minutes, but the main part of it is what I wanted to play for you, and that's what that was. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's go back to New Year's Eve, 1982. Do you remember what you were doing then? Well, if you were this specific person, I guarantee you, you remembered what you were doing, because New Year's Eve, 1982, in Hudson River Valley, New York, just a few minutes before midnight, a retired police officer was in his backyard in nearby Kent, New York, when he noticed something odd in the sky. And it was a group of red, green, and white lights in a boomerang shape heading south. Now, from what he said since, he thought it was a passenger jet. He, th he said he thought it was in trouble, that as it got nearer, he noticed it was moving too slow and was perfectly silent apart from a humming noise. Spoiler, I'm going to say the words perfectly silent apart from a humming noise a whole heck of a lot in this story. So as he watched, he said the lights, which appeared as a V-shape, were connected by a dark triangular fuselage. He said he could actually see the fuselage of whatever this thing was, and it was huge. Now I'm actually going to stop right here because I know what skeptics are going to say about this story. They're going to say he saw the B-2 stealth bomber. Well, the very first flight of the B-2 stealth bomber, which would sort of match this description, minus the lights and the whole no sound part, well, its first flight was from the U.S. Air Force Plant 42 in Palmdale to Edwards Air Force Base on July 17, 1989. 
Remember, this is 1982 I'm talking about here. Now, sure, there could have been test flights. Um, there definitely would have been test flights that happened numerous times before this official first flight. But here's my question to you. If this was the B-2 bomber, why would they light it up with a group of red, green, and white lights? And then why would they actually fly the plane over an area that had heavy air traffic? It doesn't make any sense. Neither part of it. Besides the fact that this thing was silent apart from a humming noise. The B-2 bomber isn't exactly silent apart from a humming noise. But why would they light it up? I get wanting to do an intercontinental test of the B-2 stealth bomber just to see what its range is, see if they can pick it up on radar along the way. That part totally makes sense to me. But the timing isn't right, the area isn't right, and the lights aren't right, besides the fact that it was silent apart from a humming noise. Now, this was the very first sighting of this object, but definitely not the last. Thousands of sightings were reported primarily in 1983 and 1984, but all the way up to 1987. So from 1982 all the way up to 1987, people in this area, and not just in Hudson River Valley, New York, but I mean, I guess the whole Northeast, were seeing this object repeatedly. Now I will say, that the sightings were so many, there is some discrepancy as to how many reports they actually got. They got so many reports, the police from all over got so many reports. And you have to remember, like I just said, it wasn't one local area. It was all of the Northeast that was seeing this. So there will be discrepancies in the amount of reports, but thousands is a very low estimate. Again, I wanna pause right here because I wanna reiterate this for you. For five years, from 82 to 87, thousands of people saw a boomerang-shaped UFO, silent except for the hum, low to the ground, some within 500 feet of the ground. Now, this wasn't the 1950s. This was the 1980s. And it was everyone you could think of that saw them. It was not just some regular Joe out in his backyard or driving his car. Those people saw it too. But then firemen police officers, politicians, servicemen from the Air Force and the Army, they all witnessed it. You name it, that kind of person witnessed this event. We have some very credible, highly credible eyewitnesses to this event. One thing I noticed while doing the research for this was that the description of the huge triangle with lights sounds sort of like the Phoenix lights, but on a grander scale. So anyhow, I just something I wanted to throw out there that I noticed it kind of just jumped out again. The Phoenix lights always seem to jump out year after year or story after story. And here's another one. Okay, from 1982, let's move on to March 26th, 1983. When a front page story in the Westchester Rockland Daily News said, hundreds claim to have seen UFO. So if you happen to listen to the Giants episode I did last week, you'll know that I often want to go to the archives of the paper to try and make sure this headline really happened because it's very easy to fake a headline. A lot of websites do it. A lot of websites just say, on this specific day, the front page of the newspaper said that JFK was flying a UFO with Stalin and killed Hitler. You know, it doesn't make it real. So here's what I did. I went to the paper's archive. I narrowed down the search by years 
and then I used UFO as a keyword. And I was expecting to get one or two hits as a result. I got 1,724 matches from a relatively small newspaper. Now you heard that right, between the years of 1962 to 1990, that was my search field. I typed in UFO, I got back 1,724 matches on UFO stories. Now, I'm not saying that all were sightings or all were local. There were UFOs being spotted all over America, around the world really, so it could have been stories about, it was, some of those were stories about UFOs around the world. But still, the average amount I find when I do these kinds of research is 10 stories at most. So UFOs have been a hot topic for the local paper for years. And for that area, for a very specific time from 62 to 90, which, which isn't that grand of a scale of time, this paper has been reporting UFOs more than anyone that I've found so far. Now, while I'm speaking of newspapers, let me pause right here for another round of stopping the skeptics. I'll be honest, at this point, I haven't been able to debunk anything about this story. I have found something that I think skeptics might say, what about this? So, in speaking of newspapers, there was a 1984 magazine article about a group of amateur pilots who flew private, small, single-engine airplanes out of a number of airports in that area including the strip at Stormville, which is very close by. Now, the story goes that a few of the Stormville pilots began practicing formation flying, flying very close together and in unison, first in the daylight, then at night. The story continues that by early 1983, when the news was talking about the UFOs pretty regularly and the, and the TV stations and everybody was primarily talking about UFOs in that area, these pilots thought they would have some fun. They began calling themselves the Martians and started flying tighter in formation and lower. So a couple of the witness reports have been determined to be these guys which called themselves the Martians. Now here's my problem with this being the only explanation for all of these sightings. Ever live near an airport? Well, I do. And small, single-engine aircrafts are loud. In fact, you can probably hear some of them in the background of older episodes or this episode of this very podcast. If you believe all the witness stories, hell, if you only believe half of them, they all had one key thing in common, silent except for a humming sound. That doesn't sound like one, and especially not a dozen or more, single-engine airplanes from the 80s at around 500 feet. Now, the group mainly flew Cessna 152s, which aren't the loudest by any means, but they are still loud enough to be noticed at 500 feet overhead in a large group wingtip to wingtip. So, was I there? No. But just based on the eyewitnesses who were there, I don't buy this as a valid source of all of these sightings. You have to remember, most of the witnesses could see the body of the UFO between the lights. They said it was one solid object. It was all black. Then there's this. There are reports from people who did see the Martian airplane group, whatever you want to call them, the bunch of guys, and the actual UFO. Not at the same time, never at the same time, but they saw one, then they saw the other, and they said it was definitely two very 
distinct, very different things. Okay, that's my last, I think, stopping with the skeptic. Anyhow, so this news article got some national attention. And you might actually recognize a name I'm about to say in a second here. The article, the TV stations, everything got the attention of a group of UFO researchers in the Valley associated with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. If you don't recognize that name, you really got to go back and listen to all of the old episodes until you find it. When you do, tally up how many times I've said the name Dr. J. Allen Hynek and let me know. So this group started an investigation, including Dr. J. Allen Hynek, which is the source material for the book, Night Siege, The Hudson Valley UFO Sightings, authored by Dr. Hynek and Philip J. Imbrogno. Imbrogno. I apologize, Philip J. Anyhow, it's a great book. It's all about the sightings, the reports, the thousands of reports. It goes into this story in fantastic detail. Now, I'm only going to use a couple small snippets from the book, so I highly recommend you read the book as well. So anyhow, the group opened up a UFO hotline in the area, and they received over 300 calls from people that had seen the UFO on the night of March 24th alone. One night, 300 calls. Not one of these calls mentions it might have been a bunch of small airplanes flying close together, but a whole lot of them mention the no sound other than the humming. Now, I said I was going to mention a couple small snippets from the book. Well, here's one. One witness from the book reported that it had moved up from the Taconic Parkway in sort of a Z pattern. So they weren't flying in a tight formation very slowly, very straight-lined. He described the object as being triangular in shape with 30 to 40 colored lights along the back edge. And that's very important in a second, I'll tell you why. The object, he stated, was huge. He says, if there is such a thing as a flying city, this was a flying city. So the reason I say that the lights being along the back edge only is very important because on airplanes, the lights are on either wingtip, the front and the back. Not just the back edge only. And if you see artist renderings of this, it really does look like a flying boomerang with dozens of lights around the back edge. It really does. All right, so here's a couple more excerpts from the same book. The object apparently cruised over the community of Yorktown that evening too, where the police switchboard became so jammed with reports, officials became concerned that they would be unable to take emergency calls. On the Taconic Parkway, people pulled over to watch the object as it moved slowly on its path. One observer estimated, quote, it was as large as an aircraft carrier. Again, doesn't sound like a bunch of small Cessnas to me. The UFO researchers estimated that over 5,000 people had seen the object over a period of five years from 82 through 86. The UFO was seen not just over the Hudson Valley, but as far east as New Haven, Connecticut, and as far north as Brookfield, Connecticut. And this is very important. Here's some more witness testimony from that same book. While most reports describe the UFO moving at a very slow speed, hovering or turning slowly like a wheel, a few reports describe the object as suddenly zooming away at fantastic speeds or just disappearing. In some of the accounts, the shape varied so that the lights appeared as more of a circle than a V. Often the color and the arrangements of the lights changed as the viewers watched. Again, 
Airplane lights don't do that. In a few cases, reports arrived that put the object at a two distant locations at the same time, suggesting there might be more than one of them. The object also seemed to be interested in bodies of water. One witness watched the UFO over Croton Falls Reservoir, where it seemed to use a red beam to probe the water. One of the most amazing reports was from the guards at the Indian Point Nuclear Plant. The UFO hovered over the active nuclear reactor for minutes, coming as close to the reactor dome as 30 feet. The security supervisor even considered ordering guards to shoot it down. One guard described it as being the length of three football fields. This thing was huge. Now this leads me to a number of questions like, so why weren't jets scrambled? Why did they let it get that close? How come they didn't shoot at it? How does something like this happen in the 1980s? The Cold War was still going on. Freaking Reagan was president. Yet a UFO the size of three football fields can get within 30 feet of an active nuclear plant? It's insane to me. And like I said, I don't understand why this isn't a bigger case. Now, the story got a resurgence in 1992 on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, and it actually interviewed witnesses that saw it. Now, in the end, it couldn't determine what caused the Hudson River lights. Some say it was small airplanes. One guy said, I'm an air traffic controller and I saw a bunch of small airplanes. I'm sure he did. Those Martian guys were out there. And by Martians, I mean the bunch of guys in the small airplanes calling themselves the Martians. They were out there. Sometimes on the same night, not at the same time, but sometimes this object was seen when they know that these guys were on the ground and not in the air. So, as I said at the beginning, this is an unexplained one that I am shocked is not bigger. Alrighty, from there, let's go on to the next story. This next widely seen UFO is also the longest known UFO chase ever. Now, I'm not talking about some fighter jet from the military chasing a UFO or a UFO seen in low orbit from space. No, I'm talking about a UFO chase that took place at 5 a.m. on April 17th, 1966 in Portage, Ohio. On that night, two Portage County, Ohio sheriff deputies had stopped to investigate an abandoned vehicle along the side of State 224. Along the side of State Route 224, near the town of Atwater, near Ravina, which is a small town in Ohio. So, a couple of small town sheriffs in a small town stopping to check an abandoned vehicle. The two police officers were Deputy Dale Spar and Wilbur Barney Neff. Now, they're out on patrol. They spot this abandoned car. It's 5 a.m., so it's a little odd that it's sitting there abandoned. It's a small town. They want to make sure everyone's okay. Almost as soon as Dale gets out of the police cruiser, they hear something strange. An odd humming noise is coming from somewhere. And it doesn't take them long to figure out where it's coming from because according to an article that appeared in the Record Courier the following day, a UFO shaped sort of like a saucer it made a sound like an overloaded transformer. So a, again, a very loud, humming, weird, crackly sound. This thing rose from behind the trees and hovers right over their patrol car. When it came close, they could feel the heat baking off of it, they said. They said a blinding bright beam of light emitted from the UFO onto them, and it was so close to them that they could get a look at it and its size. 
they estimated it was 40 feet wide and 20 feet tall. So it was huge, and it was silent other than a weird humming noise. Two stories, 20-something years apart, both stories, they give the exact same description of the sound. Anyhow, so Dale Spar goes on to say, the lines of the object were very distinct. He said somebody had control over it. It wasn't just floating around, it can maneuver. Now Neff, who is still in the car, he radios dispatch to tell them what they're looking at, and they immediately give him permission to shoot the object. That's dumb. But then almost immediately after giving permission, Sergeant Henry Schoenfeld tells them to stand down. Now he's afraid they stumbled upon a government weather balloon, which is a very kind of logical explanation if you aren't looking at this thing. He sees that something's kind of floating above them. We all know at this point that weather balloons are out there. The military are using them. Probably not a good idea to shoot one of them down. Now about this same time, police chief Gerald Buchert, Gerald Buchert, who was on patrol in nearby Manita, Mantua, nearby Mantua, M-A-N-T-U-A, which is less than nine miles away, well, he hears the deputy's call about lights in the sky. So he races home to get his camera, which is very close nearby, and then takes off in his car towards these deputies. When he gets near enough to see it, he snaps three photos of what he describes as two table saucers put together. Now, I don't know if it was because he was taking photos of it or the UFO had just had enough, but just as silently as it was hovering, it takes off. Now, it zips away at a high speed to the east. So Spar jumps into the cruiser, and both him and Neff start chasing after it. But not only them, because the police chief started chasing after the UFO as well. Now, the chase slowed down near Rochester when the two police cars got, quote, tangled up in a mess of bridges, according to Spar. Spar would later explain, quote, When I came out from under the bridge, it came down and waited for us just as though it knew these two cars were following it. So it appeared that as soon as, oh, end quote, it appeared as soon as Spar and Neff, who were now getting low on gas, got close to it, the UFO would speed up and zoom away again. It was playing with them. The faster Spar pursued in his cruiser, the faster the UFO went. Soon, they were speeding east down old Route 14 into, quote, the rising sun. And they were going about 100 miles an hour at times. Now, occasionally, they'd have to stop for lights or for traffic to be safe. And when they did, again, the UFO would slow down too. He said it was definitely intelligent and it was playing a game of cat and mouse with us. And I, I gotta be honest, the UFO did seem to be playing with them. It could have easily taken off and left them behind or just shot straight up or whatever, but it didn't. It kept slowing down, kept waiting for them, then taking off again, and it never went too high either. It was staying close to the horizon and staying close to them. So, unfortunately, Spar and Neff, well, their police cruiser was running really low on gas, so they pulled into an Atlantic service station where they were met by another cop, Conway Patrolman Frank Panzanella. This wasn't a coincidence. They were listening to the chatter over the radio as these guys were chasing, quote, whatever it was. So now it's been over an hour since they've been chasing this UFO. And this is when Spar radioed in that three U.S. fighter jets were seen in pursuit of the UFO. So it's not ours. Definitely not ours. The officers would intermittently pick up radio chatter between the fighter pilots about the UFO as well. 
And then the UFO shot straight up and was gone. To give you an idea of how long this chase lasted, well, the police had chased the UFO for 86 miles. Sometimes at speeds of 100 miles per hour. They actually went from Ohio to Pennsylvania when this thing finally just shot off and was done. This wasn't a brief spotting of a UFO. This was for over an hour and from four trained police officers and hundreds of civilians. How do we know there were hundreds of civilians? Well, there were numerous UFO reports that night from different counties. And like I said, the local paper ran a front page story about it with the headline, they tailed the saucer for 86 miles. That was the headline on the local paper the next day. And it wasn't just local press. International press got wind of the story too, and they ran with it. Well, not surprisingly, the officers were visited by our government, or more specifically, by Major Hector Quintanilla, who was, at the time, the director of Project Blue Book. Not surprisingly, headquartered out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio. So they were local. Project Blue Book got wind of this. Just like the last story, J. Allen Hynek is connected to Project Blue Book. So this Major Hector Quintanilla... Well, after long interviews with each officer separately, this Quintanella guy had explanations for both the sightings and the photos that the police officers took. This should be good. His explanation? Well, first it was a satellite they saw. Then, the planet Venus refracted through fog. Then, the officers were chasing a stationary object. And he said that radar didn't indicate anything peculiar going on and no fighter jets were ever dispatched. Can you get a load of this total bullshit explanation by Major Quintanilla? First off, the officers saw it really close to the ground. They could see it was an object. It slowed down and sped up. It could get, they could get a lot closer to it. Then it would take off a little farther. Two fighter jets were seen by civilians and police officers, besides these two main officers that chased it. There was also that other cop that chased it and took photos of it. What about those photos? Well, Quintanilla said, the photos were, quote, severely fogged. That's it. And kept the photos. Big shocker there. After the interviews, the officers were suggested to not talk about it anymore. And except for Spar, the rest of the guys really didn't. This was still a time in America where if the government said, don't talk about it, people didn't talk about it. Now, Spar never retracted his report of what happened, though. And that's very important. Spar was very firm. This was real. This happened. I'm not crazy. Over time, though, the officers would back down from the original reports, the rest of them, some refusing to talk about it ever. Now, like I said, Spar never discounted his experience, and it cost him. It cost him both his job and his marriage. As Spar later said, if I could change all that I've done in my life, I would change just one thing, and that would be the night we chased that damn thing, that saucer. Years later, Spar's son would go on to say he didn't really like to talk about it, and when he would, he always said, I wish I'd never seen it. So unfortunately, standing up for himself and standing up for his beliefs 
kind of ruined Spar. What happened to him? Well, like I said, it pretty much ruined his life. He lost his job, then his wife left him. Eventually, he moved to West Virginia, where he worked in the mines, where, sadly, he had a terrible accident, falling 70 feet down a shaft, breaking his back. Now, he eventually did recover from that, mostly, and even did a little consulting for a very small movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Now, Spar was very proud, very proud that he was a cop, and very proud that he served and saw what he saw. So proud, in fact, that he walked off the set of Close Encounters of the Third Kind after he found out the main character was not a cop, he was just a regular guy. So, he was led to believe the story was going to be more about what Spar actually went through and about Spar himself. That's why he was brought on as a consultant. Now, he eventually passed away in 1983. I can't definitively prove this next statement, but his son has said on numerous occasions that Spar and Neff kept a camera in their cruiser and took dozens of close-up photos of the UFOs that Quintanella confiscated and has never been seen publicly. And I gotta say, that's not a stretch to believe that. It really isn't. Two officers, one driving, one is a passenger, they're that close to a UFO, they've got a camera in the car so they can take pictures of accidents and license plates and whatnot. So they took as many photos of it as they could, hoping to prove their stories, only to have the government take it away. Okay, so what do you guys think? Have you heard either of these stories before? Are you as amazed as I am that these stories are not bigger stories? Now, sure, technically the second story does seem to be an inspiration a little bit for Steven Spielberg's movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But, not to this effect. They chased a UFO through for 86 miles for over an hour in multiple states. That is just astounding to me. And neither of these stories are too far away either. It's not like either of them happened in the 50s. One was the late 60s and one was in the 80s. I'm just shocked that these aren't bigger stories. All right, let me ask you this. What would you have done if you were those two cops? Would you have chased that UFO? Would you continue to chase it for 86 miles? And if the government did come to you after the chase and told you never talk about it again, would you talk about it? Knowing that it might actually ruin you both financially and personally, both financially and personally, would you have stuck to your guns and said, no, I saw what I saw and this is what I saw? Or would you have caved and said, okay, I'll never speak of it again? Think about how many other stories there are out there that we might not ever hear about or possibly have the people have sought and died that we'll never know about because the government stepped in and said, this never happened never tell anyone. It was a very common thing, and it happens to this day. It's still happening. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed these two stories. I know I did. Once again, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac.
Rufus Wolf Neon. Girl, you in Rufus Wolf always there.